you have a Bible, I would ask that you open it to Exodus chapter 5. If you don't have scriptures with you this morning, you can find the Bible in the pocket of the seat in front of you, and, uh, and there you can find Exodus chapter 5 on page 44. Do you believe in Satan? Do you think that there is a literal demonic enemy in the world who plots and seeks both your hurt and your destruction? A lion that prowls around waiting to devour, a wicked warrior who shoots fiery darts in your direction? Or is that just an old boogeyman meant to keep children and parishioners in line to warn them of the dangers of the world? Is it simply a personification for people of old of the fact that there is some evil about? For some, even those who would profess Christ, it is more than just a little off-putting to talk about Satan. They can hear about general supernatural powers, and they can even believe in angels, and they will listen to all the talk that you want to give them about God, but they don't care much for hearing of this sort of angelic enemy. It's foolishness or something like that. I'm afraid, though, that the Bible is somewhat pressing on this matter, that Satan is true and real, that he works in people, and he does indeed seek your harm and the harm of all. He does so in ways that are not always seen or understood or recognized, but nevertheless, he is working. And in the Old Testament, we might think that he pops up every now and then, but for the most part, he's not to be found. We know that he's there in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 in the form of a serpent, and what's more, we know that he pops up in books like Job, but you might look at the rest of the Old Testament and say, well, Okay, he seems to be gone after Genesis 2 and 3, except for this weird appearance in, in the book of Job. And then maybe he just kind of decides to come back on the scene for Jesus in the wanderness and uh, the, the, the desiring of Jesus to lead him away and to tempt him in the wilderness. But nevertheless, you should understand that Satan is always there working behind the scenes and the leaders and the politicians of the days and, and those who would seek to lead the people of God away from their faith. He is always there in the background, plotting, fighting, working, scheming. Everywhere that the people of God have an enemy, there he is working. We've already talked about how the Pharaoh, not just the Pharaoh that is before us today, but even his father, Pharaoh, earlier in the book of Exodus, is like the devil. It's a comparison that we are going to continue to make and will make fully later on. But here, I think that we can find that Satan is indeed working through him, seeking to lead others into folly through his own sin. But more important than that, what we get to see is we get to see God's faithful and kind and patient and loving response to his people. His people, when they mock him, when they don't believe in him, God's response is yet faithful and kind and true. Leaving Exodus 4, we would likely to be under the same sort of appreciation of the situation that the Hebrews were in. Moses shows up with Aaron. They have proclaimed what God told them to proclaim. The people believed, the elders believed, miracles were performed, they bowed down and they worshiped. Soon our deliverance is going to come, soon salvation will come. If you ask most people to kind of walk them through the Exodus narrative, 
Chances are good that they would remember that Moses was put in a basket. They would remember the burning bush. They would remember the messages to the people, perhaps, and certainly the messages to Pharaoh. They would, they would remember all of those things, but they would forget chapter 5. Because chapter 5 doesn't fit very well in the flow of things. It's not a chapter of redemption. It's not a chapter of power. It's a chapter of slavery and oppression, even after God has promised a great deliverance from his people. It doesn't go well. Moses' interview with Pharaoh doesn't go well. The Hebrew leaders meet with Pharaoh. doesn't go well. Pharaoh decides to flex his power. There is, in this chapter, no redemption. There are no powers being shown by God, no miracles, no smiting. There's not even a little bit of smiting. There's no pushback. There's none of it. We talk about Exodus being a picture of our redemption, and this is indeed a good picture of what happens in the real world. This is the difficulty of sin and grace, of living in a world that is filled with sinful people and living in a world that is under the management and control of one who seeks our harm. Not everything happens on our schedule. Not everything that we want to have happen and not everything that God promises to have happen happens when we want it to or perhaps even when we think we need it to. Here we read of the devastating sin of Pharaoh and how that impacts both Moses and the Israelites, but we also read of the extraordinary grace of God in the face of evil and oppression. Today, because we have a longer passage, we're going to break it into two sections. For our first point, and those points that thereby follow, we're going to read simply chapter 5. So if you would follow with me, let us read Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer a sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men so that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw for yourselves whenever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, 
were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given, us, is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now go and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is the word of our God. Let us speak of Pharaoh's sin here. First, I'd like you to know that Pharaoh's sin is indeed ignorant. It's ignorant. Moses relates the message of God to Israel. There are some differences in what God has said, minor differences in places compared to what Moses actually reports. There is one place, however, that Moses seems to include something that is way off from anything that God has spoken to him. Pharaoh has rejected the offer, and in verse 3 he says, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And here is the important part where he differs. He says, Lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Moses has given the message to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I don't know who this Yahweh is. And I think what Moses is trying to do is trying to persuade Pharaoh. He says, I know you're worried about the labor. I know you're worried about all the work that they do. But listen, your, your laborers are going to be destroyed. You don't know this God. I'm telling you, he's going to show up and he's going to destroy them with pestilence or with the sword, whatever the case might be. It's quite an astonishing thing to say. As though God needs the help of Moses to speak correct words. But Pharaoh's response is all the same. Who is this Yahweh you speak of? Who is, who is this God? His question here has a very simple implication. Pharaoh says, I, I, I don't know this God. I have no reason to fear anything that he might do to me. I have no reason to think that he has power over me at all. I have never heard of him. I haven't seen his works. There is no record of him. Why should I care at all what the God of the Hebrews says? Why should I care at all what a God of a slave people says? It's clear that he doesn't think that God is a threat to him at all. The truth is that Pharaoh's sin is ignorant. It's ignorant because he doesn't know God. He says very clearly, I don't know God. This is where so many people are today. Sure, there are a lot of people who claim to know God, who don't truly know God, who would claim to know Christ and really don't have a saving faith in him, but there's a lot of people today who would simply look at you if you were to go out and evangelize them, if you were to go out and speak to them of God and say, listen, you need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they would say, I don't, 
I don't know who this God is. I don't know of his power. I don't know of his might. How am I supposed to know that what you're telling me is true? Why should I listen to you? Why should I listen to him? If this is his word, why isn't there more proof of him? Their ignorance is the same as the ignorance of Pharaoh. And even though they couch it in language of ignorance, it is no less sinful. You don't need to know God to stand against him. And you don't need to believe in Satan to be his tool. The problem is solving that particular issue. Pharaoh stands up and he says, I don't, I don't know of this God. Implication, again, being, I, I don't think that there's a threat here for me. How is God to answer that? Pharaoh's going to say, I, I'm not going to ever let you go. I, I'm never going to let you go. I'm not going to let you cease from your labor until I know that this God has power over me. God says, all right, we can do that. I will show my power over you. Not only will I pull my people Israel out of Egypt, but what's more, I will make them so hard bent upon you. There, my existence over you will, will annoy you. My existence over you will be so powerful that you will thrust them out from you. Pharaoh, like anyone in this world, can be ignorant of the nature and the power of God, even the enemy of God that works behind him, still feel the brunt of God's jealousy over his people. We know that there is even less reason to be ignorant of God today. We have scriptures, we have the people of God who have for 2,000 years decried the unbelief of the world that Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the grave and therefore he should be believed upon as the very Son of God. To think that he doesn't exist and to demand that there be more proof. Well, it's not, it's not just to deny the whisper of the Lord in Scripture. It is not just to deny the kindness of that particular demonstration of love is enough. It is no less than a cry of war to ask God to show up in a powerful way that will not work well for them. Pharaoh indeed wants to show his power over God and over God's people. His sin is ignorant, but secondly, it is insidious. It is crafty. It is cruel. The Pharaoh acts like his dad. His dad's reaction was a little off, if you remember correctly. He was worried that the people were, were going to up one day and leave. And so he says, what we'll do is we're going to threaten the livelihood of their sons and we're going to oppress them in slavery. Pro tip, if you really want someone to stick around, don't treat them like dirt, okay? It's a really mysterious thing that Pharaoh thinks that this is going to work. What I'm going to do is I'm going to really oppress the people. That way they never leave. His son seems to be a little bit quicker than him. And you can read what he does here as simply the petulant response of a man who wants to always get his way, especially when he is threatened. He just flexes his power to show everyone who's in charge. I don't know who this, this God is. I don't know who Yahweh is. But I will tell you who is in control of your people. I am. You're going to keep making bricks. Bricks in that area, because of the constitution of the clay, needed straw to solidify them. He says, 
We used to give you straw, but no more. Now you can do extra work. And you know why you're going to do extra work? Because I am in charge. Son seems to have a better handle on things than his old dad. He really is incredibly crafty and handy here. At the end of chapter 5, or at the bottom of chapter 5, Pharaoh says, Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. I don't know if he just wanted to show everybody who's in charge, but the one thing that he says he wants to do is the one thing that he does. He wants to drive a wedge in between the people of God and this Moses. You will not pay any attention to him. If I increase the burden on you, you will not pay any attention to him. And it's true. It works. Might not have been exactly what Pharaoh was going for, but it certainly sounds a lot like Satan. It is insidious, it's crafty, it's shrewd, and it works. The people turn on Moses, who, just a chapter before, just a handful of verses before, was their liberating hero who has come to do the power of God, to show signs and wonders. They believed and they worshiped, and now, now he is their enemy. And this, in turn, brings us to our third point, which is that Pharaoh's sin is infectious. It's infectious. There are four main groups here, although Pharaoh's workmen and their interaction with the people of God are one of those. We're going to ignore them. There's four main groups here. There's Pharaoh, the people of God, Moses, and God himself. Each one of those groups, beside God, has their own problems, and Pharaoh's quite clearly seems to be pride. Pharaoh would have considered himself a piece of divinity. He would have thought of himself almost as God embodied on the earth. He had been given the entire land of Egypt to rule over as a god. He thinks that he has all of the backing of the divine gods, and therefore, who is possibly going to mess with him? Who is going to come and tell him what to do? I'm, I'm Pharaoh. It's pretty obvious that that is Pharaoh's besetting sin. The Israelites also have a besetting sin. It's a sin that's going to pop up throughout the book of Exodus. It will, it will pop up when Moses doesn't return and they build a golden calf. It's going to pop up in the wilderness when they don't have what they feel is enough meat or enough water. Security is theirs. They don't know this God, but they do know Pharaoh. When they're told of this incredible, incredibly evil work of Pharaoh, You're going to have to continue to do all of the labor that you were forced to do before, and then more on top of it. But all of the bricks that you were required to produce still going to be produced. This is what they say. The foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. They, They didn't cry to God. Pharaoh offers them slavery and oppression. God offers them liberation and kindness. And who do they cry out to? They cry out to Pharaoh. They say to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? Pharaoh, don't you know how good we've been for you? Don't you know how how hard we've worked for you? Why would you treat us like this? The whole point of what God is saying is, I'm going to pull you out of Egypt so that you can be my people, so that you will have a good master, a kind master, one who will not require out of you but will give freely to you. They don't. They run from that God. They run to the one who is oppressing them. 
doing horrible, evil things to them. They say to Moses, and they finally get to him, the Lord look at you and judge. Do they believe in the Lord? Do they simply use his name in order to say something like this? I don't know this Yahweh that you said you meant, this fiery bush, and who did these miracles that these magicians are probably going to replicate here in just a couple of chapters. I don't know if you actually met him, but if he's real, I hope he judges the junk out of you because this is horrible. What they're doing is simply mocking God in Moses. If this God exists, I hope he deals with you because he's not doing anything for us. They go on to say that now we stink before the Egyptians, which is a funny, funny thing to say, given that that word stink is going to come back up when it talks about the fish in the Nile. When the Nile turns to blood, all of the dead fish are going to start to stink. And the frogs, when they come up in their multitudes and die, in the houses of the Egyptians are going to start to stink. It is the stench of death. They're saying, you know, you know we are as good as dead to the Egyptians now. As <laughs> as though they had life in Egypt before. Lastly, they look and they say that Pharaoh and his people now have a sword in their hands. They now are able to do and visit upon us the wrath that they want to, which is ironic because this is what precisely Moses said would be visited upon them, not by Pharaoh, but by God. I think the point of putting this word on their mouth again is simply this. Why worry about what God is going to do when we have Pharaoh to deal with? The people are much more concerned with Pharaoh than they are with God. They're much more afraid of Pharaoh than they are of God. They don't believe that God can do what he has promised to do, but they do know what Pharaoh can do. They would rather have and continuously show that they would rather have the discomfort of known oppression than the sufferings of their deliverance. Their discomfort created by Pharaoh leads them into sin that will be common for them. If only we were in Egypt. If only we were back where we had meat. If only we were back where we had food. If only we were back where we had water. We'd be comfortable. Sure, we'd be enslaved. Sure, this God has shown us that he is capable of providing for us, but at least there we would know. Walk by faith? No, we will not. Security leads them into sin. Moses also has besetting sin, and he is indeed infected as well by Pharaoh's sin. Moses, at this point in time, it's just it's hard to believe that he has actually bought in to this entire plan of God. He seems to be going along with it. He seems to be doing some of the things that God has said, but quite frankly, he just, if there is a guy who's all in, it's not Moses yet. Moses suffers from pride as well. It's a weird sort of pride, though. It's a sort of self-deprecating pride, a pride that insists that you are not enough, which, again, doesn't sound like pride at all. Moses says, I, I, I can't do this. This is, you're asking me to do something. I can't do this. As though Moses, as a mouthpiece for God, who isn't even talking to Pharaoh, but simply relating the message to his brother so that his brother would relate it, is such an important cog in the process that if he fails, the entire plan and salvation of God fail. 
is prideful. He thinks he's that important. I can't do this. The whole thing's going to go to trash because you've appointed me. So God needs Moses. Moses' sin here is abominable. He goes on at the very end of this to say, you have not delivered your people at all. As though God was saying, oh, 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 yeah, I, I had a checklist and everything. You think I would have remembered that? Moses knows that God knows that. Why does he tell them? Why does he look at God and say, you haven't delivered your people at all? It's because he says, I don't, I don't truly think you can. If you can, you would have. You didn't, so you can't. Not only that, but he aligns him with Pharaoh. Notice what he says. Lord, why have you done evil to this people? And later on, he says, Pharaoh, when I went into him to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Both you and Pharaoh are working in tandem, it seems like, so that evil will be visited upon the people of God. This is the desire of Satan. It is to use the sin of the world to infect us. To use our own proclivities towards sin to make us think that somehow God isn't going to be good enough, Jesus isn't powerful enough, he doesn't care enough, he either cannot or simply will not deliver us. Each of us is prone to sin, whether it's anger, jealousy, doubt, pride, gossip, lust. And the unabashed sin of the world in the face of God, and let's be quite honest, his sometimes, according to our measurement, delayed justice and bringing about what is good and right and true. The unabashed sin of the world in the face of God's delayed justice, even if it is true that his promises are coming, can prompt in us sin and a sin of unbelief, just like we find in both Moses and the people of God here. This is the very thing that Peter warns us about, talking about the, the delay of the return of Christ and, and the goodness of, of waiting for the Lord to come. He says there will be scoffers in the last day who will say, hey, today is just like the day before and that was just like the day before. There is no promise of his coming. Where is it? It's not coming. Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter warns us there is a delay. It doesn't seem like God is acting, and that because of the this way the world lives in their sin can lead you into sin, thinking that God doesn't know, God doesn't see, God doesn't care. And Peter says, no, you need to understand and be resistant against that. Psalm 73, which we, we happen to go over in prayer meeting this week, is about the most honest confession that anyone outside of David, maybe Paul, gives in all of Scripture. A psalmist is looking at how the wicked continually get away with stuff. They continually work and do all the evil that they want to. In verse 11, he says, The wicked say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain. All in vain. I've kept my heart clean 
and washed my hands in innocence. He says, it's, it's worthless. All this time I've been trying to keep myself from evil and I look around and I see how all of the evil people are just getting away with it. And God doesn't come. He doesn't show up and vindicate me. He doesn't show up and, and lead his wrath and anger to promote justice in the world. I, I look around and I think this is all vanity. It's stupid, me trying to be innocent in the world. For all the day long, I have been stricken or rebuked every morning. This is exactly what Satan wants. Look at the sin of the world. It's enticing. There's part of you that wants to engage in it, part of you that longs to engage in it. And look around and see that God isn't coming. See that God is far off. See that, that you might not ever, ever have the deliverance that you want. Don't you want to taste? Don't you want to try? How would God respond to this, especially when his people give in to it? You might think that he would respond in wrath. This is like textbook teeing it up for God. He's been mocked. He's been challenged by his people. Moses has flat out, flat out accused the Lord of doing evil. But interesting, what God does is so restrained that scripture really does make little of it. It doesn't highlight how gracious and merciful what he says is, although it is incredibly gracious. It doesn't even point it out. It just has him respond to it with such restraint and understanding and patience. Let us read verse, chapter 6 through verse 13 and see how God responds to this. Chapter 6 reads this way. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord." Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips." But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This, again, is the word of our God. Briefly, let us go 
through these many points about what God's response is like. First, God's response is reaffirming. God's not blown off course by the sin that he sees around him. His goals are not swayed. His purpose does not falter. Instead, he very calmly and clearly looks at Moses and says, we're ready now. Almost, almost like God was waiting for everyone to doubt him so that he could prove everyone wrong. You're ready for it, Moses. The people are ready for it. Pharaoh is certainly ready for it. He doesn't tee it up here. He's going too soon. God never desires for other people to sin. He doesn't desire to lead people away from sin. But neither does sin thwart any of his plans. Rather, sin is just among many things, an opportunity for God to show his power, his grace, and his justice. God's response is reaffirming. But secondly, it is also revelatory. Just as sin and ignorance was the start of it all, God says, I'm going to show you who I am. This is the point of stating yet again that he is Yahweh. I am that which I will be. He says, I didn't reveal this covenantal name. I didn't reveal this name to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And if you go back and read the book of Genesis, you might be a little bit confused because the capitalized L-O-R-D, which is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, appears all the time in Genesis. I think that you should just assume that that is a narrative trick done by the writer of Genesis to let us know that this is indeed the same Lord God that you've met later. We know more than the people in the passage. But nevertheless, he says, I didn't reveal myself like that to them. It probably also has something to do with the name, the Lord, and the idea that I am who I will be. I am going to show who I am. I am going to demonstrate who I am, not by telling you with words, but by showing you with action. For Moses here, it means simply this. You will get to see things that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never got to see. You will know me in a way that they never could have possibly known me. The proof, as they say, is in the pudding, and it's coming. Third, God's response is rectifying. It's rectifying. God has heard the cries of his people. He reestablishes with Moses everything that he has said before. And so he says, because of who I am, because of my covenant, because I have revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I have promised it, because I have heard the cries of my people, go and tell my people. First, I am the Lord and I will bring you out. Seven verbs come in here of importance. First one is that he will bring them out of their burdens. He is going to deal with the symptoms. He is going to deal with the pain, the problems that you feel, the, the, the burdens that you carry. I'm going to remove from you. God will not let that pain linger any longer. On top of that, he rectifies the situation not only by removing the burdens from them, by dealing with the cause of those burdens. He says, secondly, that I am going to uh, deliver you from the slavery that you are under to them. It's not enough for God simply to say, well, I'm going to deal with the pain. I'm going to deal with the problem. Like, oh, work is hard. Well, I I'm going to make you stronger. Oh, oh, the oppression is bringing you grief. I will give you some fortitude to get through it. God says, no, I I'm, not, I'm not the kind of doctor who is only going to treat symptoms and let the underlying cause go. I will not only remove the burdens from you, but I will remove the cause of those burdens. I will bring you out of slavery. There is no burden if there is no slavery. 
So God will deal with that as well. God will make all things right. And fourthly, that means that God will redeem his people too. God's response is redeeming. God is indeed the great physician. You see how wonderful his treatment is. He not only deals with the pain and removing the burdens, he not only deals with the cause by removing them from slavery, but he makes it so that it will never come back again. He is not content simply to free his people from their burden to Pharaoh and all of the slavery that he has put them under simply so that they might become a master or might become enslaved to another master. The reason for both the symptoms and the reason for the cause was nothing less than the fact that Pharaoh stood over them. He was a master over them, a foreign power in a foreign land. And God is going to deliver them, but not into the hands of another, but to himself. The picture of redemption throughout pretty much the remainder of the Old Testament is not simply buying a slave back, although it is that. But the picture of redemption is familial in the entirety of the Old Testament. To redeem someone is usually to redeem a kinsman. It's to redeem somebody in your family who has fallen on hard times or has been placed in hard times. And you come and you will buy them out of that difficulty. You will bring them back to the place that they belong in. This is what God is doing. God loves his people. He will redeem them from Egypt because they are his first son. And he will remove them from the oppression that they feel under Pharaoh, so that they might be with him forever. This is indeed the very pattern that we get in Christ. Christ calls himself the great physician because he does each and every one of these things. He doesn't just deal with the symptoms. He doesn't just deal with the fact that that sin leads to death, as we read in James. He doesn't just deal with the effects of our sin and say that, that I'm going to make it so that you can be forgiven for that and you don't have to feel the pain of that. Although he does do that, he also deals with the source. He removes our sins so that we don't have them anymore, but he does one better. He doesn't just make it so that we are clean going into heaven, but we have a chance to fall again, that we can stand before God and in heaven for eternity standing there always wondering, am I going to slip up at some point in time? Is that whole Adam and Eve thing going to repeat? No, Christ glorifies us. He purifies us. He perfects us so that sins will never threaten us again. The issue here is pain. Pain is guaranteed in this life, and you will not escape it forever. But God is good to his word, and he will come, and he will remove it and its source and everything associated with it from you. God's response is rectifying, it's redeeming, and then fifthly, it is rewarding God's grace is better than even that. He's not finished with them yet. Not only will he be with them, but he's going to bring them into a good land, not Pharaoh's land, as good as Pharaoh's land is. He's going to remove them from Pharaoh's mastery, which means he's going to remove them from his kingdom. He is going to give them a land of their own. It's a land that is good, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And when we hear about this land, that is likely what we think of, for good reason. A land flowing with milk and honey sounds pretty awesome, which my fridge flowed with milk and honey. Actually, it needs to, we go through a lot of milk. But there's probably something that we overlook when we hear this talk about the land that would have meant everything to the Israelites. As much as the promise of milk and honey is good, and it is, 
I think there's a better promise in here for the people of Israel. And that is the land is yours. It's not Egypt's land that you get to live in, as nice as it might have been for a while. It's not simply the land of Canaan that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob sojourned in, but it is your land. For a bunch of slaves who were about to be turned into refugees, I doubt that they could think of anything better than to be able to look at the place where they stand, watching their kids and say, this is mine. The earth beneath our feet is mine. God says, I will give that to you. He doesn't say, it's my land and I'm going to let you borrow it and we can change the, the rent and we can change the... No, he says, I am, I am going to send you into the land and I am giving it to you. God's response is rewarding. Lastly, God's response is resolute. It's resolute. The people still don't believe. Very kind note of Scripture. Moses goes back and he reports again to them, this is what's going to happen. Moses, somewhat acting faithfully, again, we're going to see, he just, he just, he can't make up his mind on what he wants to do. He goes back and he reports this to him, and Scripture just says they, they can't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They just, they can't do it. Moses comes up with, again, another explanation. He says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. We'll, we'll talk about that because that's repeated at the end of chapter 6, so we'll, we'll talk about that next week. But nevertheless, what Moses means by that is simply this. I, I'm not fit for this task. You sent the wrong dude. You, you should have done better. You should have picked better. Pick somebody else. But God is simply resolute. He just looks at Moses and Aaron and he says, okay, no matter what you think, no matter what you believe at this point, go in and talk to Pharaoh. He doesn't give up. He discharges them one more time. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel. You are going to do this. Go and talk. God's grace is resolute. It is relentless. It does not weary at our stubbornness. It does not wilt at our misunderstanding. It doesn't wash away in the drenching downpour of our unbelief, but it just, it's just resolute. It's an extension of the very will of God so that his response in grace pursues what it wants and will eventually overcome and take it. God's here simply and patiently and kindly reaffirms to Moses what he has already said in the first place. Go and speak to Pharaoh, for my power is about to come. The problem is, of course, that no one in this passage, chapter 5 or chapter 6 or chapter 7 or chapter 8, no one in this passage, save God himself, no, save God himself knows what to expect from God. It's a problem for the people of God. It's the problem for Moses. It's a problem for Pharaoh. God is soon going to rectify this problem. He's going to show his power over Pharaoh, his power over Pharaoh's magicians, his power over Pharaoh's God. He will indeed be definitive in his declaration that he is God over all, even over his people and even over the entirety of the land of Egypt. 
And for Pharaoh, the time of repentance will eventually have passed. You should understand that what Moses goes in before him and says is real and true. Let my people go for three days. You shouldn't think of that as a, as a fake offer. You should think of that as a real offer, a gracious offer provided to Pharaoh that Pharaoh wholeheartedly rejected. And Pharaoh's insistence that before I bend at all, God will have to show me is the very thing that God will do to his detriment. Pharaoh, in all of his sin, simply refuses and tries to drag Israel down with him. And please understand that this is nothing less than the work of Satan, who is not just the enemy of God's people, but the enemy of humanity as a whole, and even the enemy of Pharaoh. Friends, he works tirelessly to hurt you, to move you toward sin, and to move you toward doubt. For that is where God's grace is therefore most richly and truly found in Jesus Christ. That you would leave your sin, and you would leave your doubt, and you would repent, and you would trust in him. For Jesus has met the enemy of God head on. He has taken his best shot. And he still showed himself powerful over him. For death is the weapon of Satan. It is the last and the final weapon that he can ever wield. And Jesus has tasted fully the power of that weapon and showed himself powerful over it. And therefore he has granted to all who would believe by his eternal power through the redemption that is in his blood that we might never taste the fullness of that weapon. That while we might succumb in death, we will never truly die. This grace is extended to you. It is of the same nature as the grace that you find in this response, given not just to the people of Israel, but to given to all who would believe. Rejection is not, therefore, a small issue. Don't reject the grace of God in its season. If you wait for God to show his power in ignorance and sin, if you wait for God to meet your demands in arrogance and wickedness, find yourself seeing not the grace of God, but his power and his wrath. Choose for yourself this day which you'll have, but let us all this day choose very, very wisely. Let's pray. Father, by the great aid of your Spirit, let us believe and trust in the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us trust in it for our redemption, for all of our good, no matter what befalls us in this world. We know that even with Christ's victory assured, there is still a demon who desires our downfall, who seeks our failure, and would consume us if he might. May the Spirit of Christ protect us from that. Give us strength in your word and help the people of Jesus show his worth in the face of the fiercest of attacks. May they do so for your good and for his glory. Amen.